you could turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, we're going to continue our study. And stand, please. I'll be reading Hebrews 11, 8 through 19. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. As he went out, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was, even, was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you once again for the privilege of opening your word and hearing from you this morning. I pray that you would arrest our minds and our hearts to hear what you have to say, cleanse our consciences, prepare our bodies to do your will. I pray that you'd help me this morning to preach your word to submit to the Holy Spirit, that you'd hide me behind the cross, bring glory to your Son. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. Over the last few weeks, I've had the opportunity to spend some time with uh, several ministry leaders in different contexts wanted to tell you about some of them because it's really interesting how far and wide ministry can go sometimes. One leader is finishing up a seminary education. He's crafting this systematic theology curriculum to lead a church. And in this leading the church, he's crafting the curriculum to form a course 
teaching systematic theology in a church that leans heavily on charismatic expressions of spiritual gifts, and healing, and prophecy. Another pastor is serving in a context where an entire city has experienced the depths of economic depression. And his ministry is advocating for the causes of those who don't have a voice in their own future as the city works to revitalize their economy. Another pastor I spoke with started a ministry which was birthed out of a community that was developed and cultivated almost entirely online. Gathers all these people who he meets on social media and various other online community outlets. They come together and start putting together an idea and framework for a church. It's mostly working with creatives and artists whose lives requires flexibility beyond regimented schedules. It's pretty interesting. A couple other pastors I met are actually serving out in Silicon Valley. They're ministering to a crop of people who are caught in this fast-paced wave of innovation and ambition. So as you can imagine, their challenges are changing all the time. And all these people I met with and spoke with and had the time to, to learn from had, gave me some very valuable insight. Just kind of opened up my eyes to a new world of ministry and possibility. And I've been fascinated by a lot of their stories. But there's one constant, I think, that between all of those individuals captured my attention the most. And that constant was their faith. The faith that they displayed in how they shared what they were currently doing and what they were hoping to see God do in the future. Intertwined in their ministry outlook was this vision of something that's so magnificent and so profound. It could only be God who initiated it. And it's only him who could bring it to pass. It was almost like they were, they were seeing, they were actually seeing what they believed God would do. Very tangible for them. So we open up Hebrews 11 again this week. I'm once again inspired by the faith of these people. This morning, it's not my goal to do a deep dive into Abraham's entire history or Sarah's testimony or even unpack Isaac's miraculous survival. But I'd like to visit these verses this morning to wrestle with the legacy of our faith. Because we are the legacy of faith that's captured in these accounts. These aren't distant relics that we can just look back and observe almost in a museum of history. These should connect to us now, today, in a very deep way. And I'm praying for that connectivity and even a renewed resolve to be the lasting outcome of the faith that's being communicated here. I'm left with a question. What are these people in this chapter, in this, these verses that we'll explore this morning, what are these people seeing in order for them to continue believing? 
we start with Abraham, we should notice immediately in verse 8, right there in verse 8, that he went out not knowing where he was going. He was called to go out to a place where he received an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. So if I ask the question, what are these people seeing? I immediately know what Abraham is not seeing. He's not seeing what's being promised to him. He's not seeing this idea that's being presented to him. He's not seeing this country and all of the promises associated with God's interaction with him. We have to appreciate just for a moment as we read that, how terrifying this could have been. He's going out, not knowing where he's going. If we visit just with that for a moment, that is pretty intimidating. God's calling him to a place that doesn't exist before his very eyes. There's an incredible tension here. And never mind that Abraham has no frame of reference for this true and living God as we know him. There's no Israel. There's no Torah. There's no redemptive history being recorded at all. As we read this, this is not Abraham writing down his experiences. The first five books of the Torah are written by Moses. And so there's no frame of reference. There's no Bible for Abraham to read to even understand what he's getting himself into. This decision wasn't taken lightly. And frankly, if we look at it on its face, it's a pretty unwise decision. Looking at it on its face. If some of our friends, our close friends, think of some of your close friends and family if they were to tell you that they were going to do something like this, we'd do anything from laugh at them to slap them. Now, that's, that's a little dramatic, but I'm sure there'd be some level of intensity to the conversation about why would you do this? And there's a reason for that if we kind of bring our context home to now in 2018. We live in a society that lives in the reality of a lot of luxury. Now, one of those luxuries is luxury of choice. And that's a luxury we don't often acknowledge. You're a typical middle-class person, and you make your decisions based on an almost unlimited amount of factors, analyzing outcomes based on opportunity. It's a luxury to easily say that you don't have to make bad or immoral or unwise decisions. It's a luxury because we're not very well acquainted with desperation. So we can look at a variety of choices that we have to make and typically come to a nice, well-scripted outcome. We're individuals who control our outcomes. We analyze risk. The worst case scenario becomes the initial factor before we make the decision. And that can make it very hard for us to connect with this text. 
If somebody tells you you're going to go out to a place and you don't even know where you're going, then I'd venture to assume that you'd see the worst case scenario in that kind of a presentation. But what about Abram? Why would Abram do this? He has a wife. He's got an extended family to think about. So what is he seeing? What's causing him to believe that this is going to work out? This is going to be a good move for him and his family. He's living in tents as a foreigner. And this one guy is somehow going to produce heirs from a barren woman that will become a great nation that fills the skies like stars and the earth like sand. What is he seeing? A couple of weeks ago, I stated that this is not a blind faith that we're going to be walking through in chapter 11. This outcome of the nation being as numerable as the stars and the sand, the outcome is not the starting place. He's not looking to the promise in and of itself. Abraham comes to encounter the promiser. He's not looking at this building, the structure, and how beautiful it may come out to look. He's looking at the builder, the architect of said building. He's seeing for the first time someone greater than himself directing him to something that is greater than himself. That's faith. It's chapter 11, verse 6. That's what that is. Without faith, it's impossible to please him, and whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him, starting with God. It's what provokes his belief in this total trust that he exercises. This is not the man who inspires such a tale of, of heroism. Abraham is not this profile of an individual who we come to assume, of course, he would make a brave and bold and courageous decision. Of course, this is somebody who's designed from birth to look like a hero for generations to come. Of course, Abraham's the strong man fixture who was destined to accomplish something great. No, not Abraham. Abraham was basically an old man wasting away with a small family in a purposeless land. His shame was compounded in that his wife couldn't have kids. His generation was set to end in the place that he currently resided. Death was on his household. And you see verse 12, that's one man, him as good as dead. The days of Abraham and his family were set to end at that moment. Now here comes one who calls him the Lord, the Lord God, who he had never encountered before, who calls him, who interrupts this saga, which looks like it's going to have a tragic end or a story that's just going to continue to blow in the wind like dust. 
This guy is the one that God calls out to. This plateau full of darkness and light bursts through to tell him that not only his household will not die, but it'll live forever in a place that's not constructed with human hands. You've got to appreciate the preposterous nature of this promise. There's nothing around Abraham that would dictate to him such an outcome. There's nothing around him that will give him an indication that there is something to be gained or something to hope in or something to be, to be hopeful about. Still, God does it. In spite of Abram's fear, in spite of Sarah's laughs, in spite of Isaac's sacrifice, he's a rewarder of those who seek him. God has appeared to Abraham, captures his heart and his mind, the reality of who he is. Abraham's not setting out to do something based on his own strength or even the logical outcome of his immediate circumstances. But through grace, he has captured a picture of glory. He has seen a God who can do anything, and he leans forward into that. He's not simply content to allow the circumstance itself to define his next action. What he has seen is the glory and the wisdom of an infinite God who doesn't just speak to his individual circumstance, but has crafted the entire reality around him. So with that summation of these verses, I want to spend a degree of time with three application points. Dependence, dreams, and devotion. Let's start with dependence. Your ability to control things can be the biggest obstacle to your faith. If all your decisions involve is a risk assessment, you don't open yourself to understand need. A very basic element. If the sum total of whether or not you do something is analyzing the risk first, you're robbing yourself of an opportunity to cultivate your faith. You're robbing yourself of an, an opportunity to understand your own dependence on God. If you don't understand your dependence, if you don't understand your need, how will you exercise your ability to trust in God? I want to encourage you not to camouflage a lack of faith with a wisdom argument. I would encourage you not to trust in your own wisdom over something that is bigger than what you could 
contained in your own mind. Exercising faith is taking risks. You cannot escape that. You simply cannot escape it. There's something going to be on the line in order for you to exercise your faith. It doesn't just fall into a beanbag of convenience and comfortability. There's something that is going to be required of you in order to produce and exercise your faith. You learn to depend on God for the outcomes. You relinquish your control and leave them to his control. And as a result, you grow in faith. Dependence, that's something that we do not like to hear, is that we have to be dependent on something greater than us. Because we think we're pretty great after all. We think we have all the tools in order to make the right decisions and produce the right outcomes, but we are needy people. We are needy, and we have to acknowledge it first. Your perspective on dependence affects the application of community. Now, we're a primarily individualistic society, so we can struggle with the concept of community. As a matter of fact, you can talk to people in different churches across the board, and the concept of community is kind of nebulous and ambiguous. It's not really necessarily defined all the time. Because we're so individualistic, we don't typically put ourselves in position to rely on each other, to ask for help, or to even lean into what it looks like to cultivate transparency and accountability. We read texts about community. We may read the book of Acts, or we may read some instruction in the epistles, and we wrestle with it, we struggle with it, because we're trying to fit our individualistic thinking into a biblical culture of interdependence. It almost bounces right back off of the page to us, because we're used to handling things on our own. We're not used to connecting with other people and displaying a sense of need. We're not used to humbling ourselves before one another and saying we are needy and we are helpless. We're not used to calling someone else outside of our own compact circumstances and saying, what do you need? What community is supposed to communicate is our shared need for God. And as we acknowledge our shared need for God, it connects us to one another. It drives us closer to one another, causes us to depend on one another. And in doing so, our faith is strengthened collectively. That's dependence. Secondly, dreams. Open-aired question can be answered internally and maybe later on, but when was the last time that you dreamed with God? When's the last time you dreamed with God? That may sound kind of weird for some of you, but what I'm, what I'm getting at is when's the last time you opened up your, 
yourself to the possibilities of things beyond what you could conceive? When's the last time you you sat with yourself and and understood that you're limited in your thinking and you dreamed, you opened yourself to possibilities that you wouldn't logically conclude about your own life? When's the last time you envisioned an idea so preposterous that you knew it could only be inspired by God himself? Have we gotten so comfortable? Have we gotten so lax that we can no longer dream with God? I want to invite you to dream with God about possibilities. To actually believe to see what you have never seen before. To believe to see something that you could not have come up with, but you know God has done it. This church right now needs dreamers. This church needs dreamers. Christ trusters who are informing our faith as we diligently seek God for unbelievable outcomes. We can't keep living in such a way where our Christianity is less of a faith and more of a protective measure against disappointment. That's what analyzing risk gets you to where you don't want to step out there too far because you're scared that you might be disappointed. And then that cripples your understanding of how faithful God is. You can't position ourselves in such a way where rather than openly hoping in huge possibilities, we're using piety as a guard against being disappointed. We're using piety as a form to guard against the miraculous Do you believe that it's normal for Christians to experience the miraculous? That we're not just reading these these accounts as if they're this distant reality of when God was actually working on earth, but we're living in the legacy of that now. That God is actively working in in the world right now on the earth in such a way that it is amazing that people are experiencing the transformative power of the Spirit in such a way that they cannot contain it. Is that far from us? Is that something we need more of in, our, in the fiber of our being, not because somebody's making us feel guilty, but because we know that this is what we were made for? the last time you dreamed with God. We can all acknowledge the degree of nominalism that can come with church. We need dreamers here. Mediocrity is a recipe for death. 
There's only so much you're going to take some lukewarm water before you say, I don't want this anymore. It can't just exist. We have to persist. We have to move. What if Abram had played it safe? What if Abram had looked at the circumstances and said, mm, it's a bit too much. Encourage us to dream with God. Lastly, devotion. Devotion is merely this encouragement to endure to the end. Don't give up. When Isaac faced his father's knife, this is a moment that for many people can seem pretty jarring. You know, we've already been through the fact that Sarah couldn't have children, and finally she has this child, a son. Seems like God's plan is in motion. And what God tells Abraham to do was to sacrifice this son. It's important to realize that at this moment where God has asked Abram, Abraham to do this, Abraham had already been walking with God. He'd already seen God do many things. His faith was already in motion. So this is a moment where he was supposed to kill a son that he knew in his mind he wasn't supposed to have. He had that frame of reference. He wasn't supposed to have this child. So there's a complexity there. There's, there's, this child is a blessing from God, but at the same time, this child is not an entitlement. This is something that is a gift to me. And not just a gift to me, but a gift to this entire world. So if God wants me to kill this son that I have, there's something that he's already communicate, communicated to me about the fact that this child exists. Abraham's faith had grown to such to believe in even more preposterous things. You see, when we have faith in God, we need the experiential as well as the intellectual. We need to be able to come to an intellectual conclusion about what the text is saying about God. But we also need to experience the goodness of God in our life in order to build on top of what we have contained in our brains. Abraham had experienced that. As we experience the goodness of God, the faith that we, we once had will continue to grow. He'll give us the experiences of his faithfulness in our lives. We can keep coming back to God. We can keep reading his word. We can keep seeking him in prayer. We can keep taking risks that are associated with where God is leading us. And he'll show us his glory. You see, Abraham's faith had become preposterous to where that he knew 
of a God who gave something he did not deserve, nor did he know how it was going to come to pass. So his journey up to the mountain where he was going to sacrifice his son did not come with a blind faith. He was equipped with the knowledge of God. He had seen God work marvels and mysteries in his life so that now he was to the point that if he was to kill his son, he was convinced that God could bring him back from the dead. It was far beyond just logical choices. It was far beyond the the opportunity to control his outcomes. He was convinced that he had seen a God do something that was unfathomable. So why would he stop now? Of course he wrestled with his, his humanity. Of course he wrestled with the choice itself. Of course he was heartbroken because his son, this son, this precious son that he had come to love without even seeing him, was about to possibly die. And there was a, a part of his humanity that was probably racked with pain and anguish. But he ended up on top of that mountain with his son bound ready to be offered up to God. He was devoted to believing in this God all the way to the end. This kind of devotion, something that we can't cultivate in our own selves. We need God. It goes back to our dependence. As we'll continue to read these people that we speak about and testify and join in the testimony of, of reflecting on how God worked marvels in their lives and the faith that they displayed, they understand that these people died believing to see something that they never even saw. They died believing. Are we willing to die believing in such a way where we may not see the full outcome of that which we are trusting God for? This context is talking ultimately about the promise revealed in Christ as he comes to restore and redeem all of humankind through the faith that he promises through Abraham. And ultimately, we see Jesus in all of his glory. These people never saw Jesus in all of his glory. Abraham didn't see children that, num- that, that outnumbered stars and sands. But he died believing. There's no defeat or disappointment there. That's triumph. Devote yourself to a life believing God for the impossible is a full life. That's a full life. That's a life that springs, wellsprings in your soul. You're not just devoted to the outcome, but the God who orchestrates the outcome, the architect himself. Finally, there is some truth to the adage, seeing is believing. 
but it depends on what we're looking to see. In John 20, Jesus spoke with Thomas post-resurrection. Jesus had risen from the dead, revealed himself. Disciples saw him, Thomas struggling with whether or not to believe testimony of Christ's resurrection. So Christ appears to all of them. He speaks with Thomas as if to make a distinction between one who sees in order to believe and those who do not see and still believe. Scripture teaches us that we walk by faith and not by sight. But that doesn't mean that we walk by blindness. Who we see is enough to carry us to the end. Who we trust in is what gives us strength and allows us to endure. Our legacy is of those who have not seen Jesus physically. Anybody in here wants to raise their hands and say they saw Jesus physically? We need to have a separate conversation. We are not those who have seen Jesus physically walking among us on earth. But we have believed. We have not seen tangibly that which has been articulated so well to us in these chapters of Scripture, but we have believed. We are still convinced of His finished work. We are the legacy of these who did not see yet believe, so let's take our place in this legacy, this legacy of courage and conviction. Because we've seen enough in order to believe. We have seen enough. There are testimonies of God's faithfulness all over this room. I want to encourage you that we are part of this legacy. Let's not look back as if we have to review some museum, some artifacts of when God was working. Let's seek to see God do the miraculous now, to dream with God, to explore possibilities beyond what we could comprehend. And let's do that together. Let's do that in community. Let's depend on one another as we share our dependence in Christ. We're going to go into a time where we take the bread and the cup. And in doing that, we remember Christ's faithfulness. We're using elements to symbolize an actual event in history, but it means so much more than whatever we could think of in our minds or the gruesome and gory details. It communicates our hope. It communicates our destiny. It communicates what we have to live for. So as we take those this morning, I pray that our faith is enhanced, our faith is informed, is instructed that the sacrifice of Christ, his blood poured out, his body broken, inform our faith and allow us to courageously 
move ahead. Let's pray. Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever. We ask you for your help. Pray, Lord, that you would continue to help us see who you are. We open up your word and we behold mysteries apart from how your spirit gives us understanding. I pray, God, that as you teach us from your word, as we discover who you are, that you give us faith to do marvelous things, that you give us faith to take risks that we would have never decided to take, that you give us faith to pursue you in ways that maybe we've never done before. God, bless this church. Bless us individually, bless us corporately, God, that we would testify to the experienced goodness of your gospel. And as well as we can articulate all that you have done from what we learn in the Bible, I pray that we become living, walking testimonies to the greatness and the glory of your name, a sweet savor of the gospel fills every place that we live, every place that we work. That you would add to your name glory. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.